Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. I am Dr. Nicola Perra. And I am Jenna Weekland, and today you are joining us for the How to Do the Work Masterclass, Chapter 1, You Are Your Own Best Healer. I'm going to read directly from the book, How to Do the Work, page 1, chapter 1, the first paragraph, if you would like to follow along at home. Chapter 1, page 1, paragraph 1. This scenario will likely feel familiar. You decide that today is the day that you'll change your life. You'll start going to the gym, eat less processed foods, take a break from social media, cut ties with a problematic ex. You're determined that this time, these changes will stick. Later, maybe it's a few hours, maybe a few days, or even weeks, mental resistance enters. You start to feel physically unable to avoid sugary soda. You can't muster up the energy to go to the gym, and you feel compelled to send a certain ex a quick text message to check in. The mind starts to scream at you with convincing stories to keep you in your familiar life, with pleas like, you deserve a break. The body joins the mind with feelings of exhaustion and heaviness. The overwhelming message becomes, you can't do this. Now, I know from my own personal experience and experience working with others how much this truly resonates on a deep level where we're stuck in this, well, the word stuck is the first thing that comes to mind, in this cycle of starting and stopping again, maybe creating a new pattern, making a choice to change, beginning it one day and stopping the next, and finding ourselves sort of in this endless cycle or endless loop that then induces this self-doubt and this self-shame, which actually creates more mental resistance for us to begin. And I know, Nicole, in your many years with clients in the past, you have seen this stuckness, we'll say, very much firsthand. Seeing this pattern week after week, I really first sought to understand why. Why were so many of us humans stuck? And what I came to realize is that the reason we're stuck is because we are typically operating, depending on whom you read in the literature, upwards of 90, 95% of our day, we're operating from our subconscious mind or that autopilot that some of the listeners might be familiar with. And in that autopilot, for many of us, lives habits and patterns that no longer serve us. Meanwhile, in session week after week, when I'm having time with my clients, most of us are operating from a different part of our brain entirely. We're operating from our prefrontal cortex or where consciousness lives. This area allows us to see habits and patterns that no longer work for us and create those new plans of action. However, we desire as humans to stay in those familiar autopilot patterns, which is where resistance comes. According to our subconscious, the familiar is safe because it's predictable. So the reason why so many of us are stuck is because we're human and we desire to stay in that familiar pattern, despite, again, that increasing amount of insight. Understanding that really, for me, highlighted the importance of looking at this subconscious in each of us and understanding why change is hard. And of course, then giving the tools to begin to create change, despite that natural resistance that is part of the journey. And it's such an important note that you bring up that, you know, when we get into this cycle of starting and stopping again, and we do start to induce this sort of self-doubt and self-shame and noting that you, you are stuck in this pattern of keeping yourself safe. So it's also a space for us to sort of open up and welcome in that our bodies, our subconscious, our minds are doing what they think is a favor to us. They are working 
at light speed to keep us safe, to protect us, to keep us in an environment that they know so that no new variables are coming in. There's no need to worry. There's nothing to protect against. So our, our subconscious and our bodies are actually working for us to protect us with what it thinks is our best interest in mind. And it's important to remember that this best interest in mind that we're talking about is the best interest of this autopilot, of this subconscious. So it's not the best interest of our authentic self and choice. It takes that waking up to it to be able to witness the autopilot itself, to be able to witness the subconscious, for us to then come in and truly and consciously choose how we would like to create something new and allow us to tell our bodies and our hearts and our minds that it is safe, that we are okay, you don't need to go into overdrive and protect here, which then allows us to kind of pull out of that autopilot over time. And when we're in that shame and that self-doubt, creating more resistance, we get farther and farther away from being that sort of gentle, loving presence to ourselves that allows our subconscious and autopilot to feel safe enough to introduce something new. I love how you're bringing up the concept of shame, Jenna, because I think a lot of us do carry, you know, feelings of shame or we entertain ideas that we're un unworthy mm -hmm. of whatever plan of action we've created for ourselves, Or again, that future that that plan of action would allow us to embody on some deep level, constantly cycling in this stuckness is further affirmation that we don't deserve these futures that we might want for ourselves. And again, you said another word that's really an integral here, which is choice. When we're operating from that subconscious, we're a living reaction. We feel disempowered because we really don't have the space to begin to actualize new mm. choice. We're living in a very reactive way and we're very familiar with those reactive patterns. Again, we do the same things in each of those very similar moments. So what we wanna do to create change is when we wanna cultivate choice. We wanna learn how to build a foundation of living consciously so that we can see all of those older habits and patterns and in that space begin to make new choices because it's through the conscious creation of new choices that we can begin to again walk toward a future that looks different. That major shift is one from disempowerment into empowerment, into learning how to be a creator of our experiences. And for, a, for many of us, we're, we don't have that empowerment. We're living again reactively. We're firing all of those patterns that for many of us, we've accumulated a lifetime of reasons why that no longer works, yet we continue to feel powerless to it because again, we haven't created that conscious space where we can begin to make those choices. Hmm. And in that conscious space where we are able to make those choices, who's making that choice? When we're in autopilot, when we're in this cycle in our subconscious mind, we're not consciously choosing. Our subconscious is, this autopilot is going on this circle kind of round and round and round until something new is inserted into this new space. So when we talk about conscious choice or creating something newly and intentionally from a place of consciousness, Who's the one making that choice? What's filling up that space? Which is where soul comes in, which is the foundation of holistic psychology is not just mind-body anymore. We're adding a third component that has always been there all along. Anytime we're mentioning this deep inner knowing or somewhere deep inside we feel or we know, I think you can note conversations maybe you all have had with others around you when you're describing something or you have a, a deep feeling or a deep pain or a deep 
a deep knowing, this deepness that we're often referring to is what we are calling soul. So the foundation of holistic psychology is mind, body, and soul. This holistic shift, um, in my opinion, is is necessary in the field. Um, through my traditional training, we really learned separatism in a lot of ways. I became a doctor of the mind um, with this idea that the mind was somehow separate from the body. Of course, if you had an ailment in your body, you would go see a psychiatrist or a medically trained doctor. Um, those of us, of course, familiar with the Western systems, I think are familiar with this kind of what I call the siloed approach, right, where our mind is somehow separate from our body. So here I am um, offering what I believe is the need not only to integrate the mind and the body, but also to integrate this indescribable essence. Whether or not we want to apply the label of soul or not, I think we're all coming to the awareness that there is a uniqueness that makes each of us us. And to speak to Jenna's point, that's that deeper space within. The reason why we're stuck, again, operating in that old model for so long is because our mind and body in particular are in communication. So for a very long time, we believed in the field with the gold standard being CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. We believe in this idea that if you begin to change your thoughts, you can change how you feel and ultimately how you operate in the world. Now, of course, that's part of the story in the book, and we'll get to this chapter in a future week. We are going to talk all about how incredibly important our thoughts are. However, what this model is missing is the fact that our mind, our brain essentially, is connected to a body. And just as much as our thoughts are instructing our bodies, our bodies are sending messages or instructions up to our, our brains or our minds as well. And for many of us, the patterns that we're repeating in that autopilot are based in deeper imbalances in our physical bodies, namely our nervous system, which again, in a future chapter, we're going to talk all about, and our our and or our emotional bodies. So for so many of us, the signals that we're sending up are signals of dysregulation or signals of imbalance. And of course, if we're just trying to create change from the top down, that's not going to work, which is why so many of us, maybe we've tried to think ourselves into a new future or practice affirmations or positive thinking, yet we still can't feel differently or create change. That's why, because again, our bodies are just as much involved in that conversation and many of us in the field aren't really integrating body work into the, the holistic picture of mental wellness. Now, I think one of the most powerful demonstrations of this comes from the lemon visualization exercise that you share in the book. Would you do us the honor of guiding our listeners through this? Absolutely. I mean, we meet the connection between our mind and body um, in our day-to-day -day life, sometimes even in moments where we don't even realize. So listeners out there, anyone who wants to um, engage with this little exercise right now might want to close your eyes. And as we're taking a moment just to sit and to settle, closing our eyes, turning our attention inward, we can take two deep breaths Breathing in our nose or our mouth, whatever is comfortable, feeling our lungs, our belly inflate, and taking a nice, slow exhalation. And then one more time as we're maybe feeling our bodies and our minds begin to slow, begin to quiet, turning our attention inward. And now I want us each to imagine or to picture a lemon. All right, as you're calling to mind this picture of a lemon, 
I want you to see its glossy yellow skin. Maybe even hold it in your hands, feeling its ridges. Now I want you to put that lemon up to your nose and begin to smell the citrusy scent as it hits your nostrils. Now begin to imagine yourself slicing a wedge from that lemon. And as you're slicing that wedge, begin to see the juice as it jumps out, as the knife cuts through the skin. Maybe even see the oval pits as you begin to cut a slice from that lemon. Now I want you to imagine you bringing that lemon slice or that wedge up to your mouth. You may even begin to notice your lips as they begin to sting on contact. Taste the acidity, the citrus, the freshness. Noticing even as your mouth puckers or begins to fill up with saliva. Spend another quick moment or two as you notice any changes, any sensations that are present. As you imagine smelling and tasting that lemon. Now, for those who have just done this exercise with us, you have just experienced the mind-body connection. Now, the mind-body connection is the role that our minds play in shaping our body's experience, which is a massive paradigm shift as our current medical model doesn't fully acknowledge the mind-body connection. So as we're thinking about that lemon, as we're cutting that slice, I even you know, my throat and the glands in my mouth start to salivate even just as I'm cutting it also because I know what's coming next. But thinking of just the thought literally of bringing that wedge to my mouth and tasting it instantly starts to make my glands start to salivate, my mouth start to to tense up. So we're seeing the connection between our mind, our thoughts quite literally reflected into our body. So we're able to physically through reading this in the book or listening to Nicole speak it now here on the podcast, you're going through the actual process yourself of witnessing the mind-body connection inside of your own body. Now, another current and massive paradigm shift is that of epigenetics, one that moves away from the disease management model to the realization that the impact of our daily environment impacts our health. I'm going to read directly from the book, page 12, paragraph 2, if you would like to follow along at home. The science of epigenetics has shifted us away from the disease management model to a new paradigm that recognizes the impact of our daily environment on our health. The result is a radically new perspective. We can be active participants in our own well-being. This goes for our physical health and risk for developing diseases such as diabetes and cancer, as well as for our mental and emotional health. Epigenetics factors play a significant role in the development of psychiatric conditions. This is shown in identical twin studies where one twin develops a serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and the other does not. Studies of stress as early as in the womb and its connection to the development of mental illnesses later in life also show the profound ways in which our environment affects every part of the body, including its most powerful organ, the brain. Addiction and trauma specialist Dr. Gaber Mate, for example, has written extensively about the deep imprints emotional stress leaves on the structures of the brain, causing many common physical and psychological illnesses. 
Now, this new paradigm-shifting introduction of epigenetics into our lives takes us from being powerless to our health and our well-being to being empowered, active participants in our own healing. The environment plays such an important role. And for a very long time, I, like many people, believed in the older model, which is known as genetic determinism, which really Mm -hmm. simply is the genes that we were born with really determine our fate in life, whether it's our physical health or our psychological health. Some even believe our personality. And I very much believe that to be true myself, seeing similar patterns in my family, seeing us all struggling with anxiety, seeing us all struggle with the same physical complaints, namely around digestive issues. I, like many of us, had no reason to believe that that wasn't true because I knew we shared genetic components. So of course, that was the reason why we were all showing the same in terms of our physical wellness and our emotional wellness or lack thereof. So for me, Jenna, learning about this new model of epigenetic health essentially was groundbreaking because for the first time now, we actually are gifted the opportunity to play a role. Now it isn't just a matter of our genes, which of course are largely outside of our control. We don't get to determine the genetics that we're born with. However, now we get to play a role. We get to be a participant based in the choices that we make day in and day out. So for me, that was a huge shift. Now I'm not gonna, I would be lying if I said I believed it right away. Of course, my subconscious mind, as many of us do, tried to argue that away, tried to find the loophole and how that wasn't gonna be the case for me. Yet this is how we shift into a model of empowerment. We really do understand that we can begin to make and create new choices in our lives, which is the the purpose of this holistic model of healing to allow us to actually begin to impact change, to impact our bodies and our emotional wellness. We begin to play a role. We begin to be a participant. And as a result, we begin to shift out of I'm a powerless person who's reactive and very understandably feeling a victim to the circumstances around us to one who gets to, over time, create that space we were just talking about, where over time I can empower myself now to make new choices that might actually begin to map onto how I feel and what I do. And we'll continue to talk about this topic throughout all of our masterclasses, and it is cover to cover in the book where we truly get to realize that We do have a say. We get to begin to have an actual say and put that into action into our own lives. So this book, How to Do the Work, is essentially just that, giving you, opening a door for you to understand that you you do have a say and giving you tools and practices to begin putting that say into conscious and intentional action. For those of you who listened to episode one, Dark Night of the Soul, we mentioned that we will be taking live questions for each chapter of the book. So for each of the episodes of the masterclass, How to Do the Work, we'll have a live Q&A session at the end of each episode where we will play back some of the questions that you guys have called in and left on our voicemail. We'll share the live Q&A voicemail number with you at the end of the episode and we'll also post it down below so that you can see and call in with your questions for future chapters and potentially hear your voicemail recorded back on one of our episodes. We're going to dive into our live Q&A. This first question comes from Stephanie. Hey, Nicole. Uh, My name is Stephanie. Uh, I'm from Alberta, Canada. God, I wish I could meet you in person and just tell you how much you've already changed my life. But anyway, just wanted to thank you. Um, My question is, 
for the future self journal in the PDF online. I also kind of took a look at it. I just kind of wanted to know how you recommend, you know, setting, you know, like a small daily promise to yourself. Should you do it like the same one every day for like a week or should I make different ones every single day? Um, just kind of wondering what you found is helpful or if it even actually matters. Anyway, thank you so much. Um, so this question we picked in particular because we've gotten, I think, different versions of this with many of you looking for guidance on what promise we should begin to keep. Um, here's where I, I offer that it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't necessarily matter what the promise is, as long as we make sure that it's small and manageable, that we don't try to change our life from top to bottom between today and tomorrow, <laughs> because as we learned, resistance is going to be part of the story. It's difficult to step out of that familiar into the unknown, and it's going to be, to some degree, uncomfortable for us as we begin to make those new choices. So to avoid overwhelm, which happens when we do too much too quickly, we really want to focus on the smallness of it. Make sure it's a manageable promise that we can keep. Because what's most important is the underlying process of rebuilding self-trust. And how self-trust is rebuilt mm -hmm. is we begin to see alignment. For those of us that have set, set, for many of us over lifetimes, a million different promises or intentions that we've never kept, again, we begin to feel disempowered, like we cannot keep our promises, like we started with the chapter saying, I just can't do this. So we want to rebuild the path back to trusting ourselves again. And the way we rebuild that path is we begin to show ourselves a new alignment where we do begin to keep those promises that we make for ourselves. So it doesn't matter if anyone out there like Stephanie is wondering what the promise should be. Doesn't matter what it is. Keep it small keep it manageable, and it's often helpful to keep it consistent, meaning to keep that same promise for 30, 60, 90 days. Here's again where there is no number until that new promise is incorporated into your life, until that becomes the thing that you do more often than not. So keep the promise small, keep it consistent. Doesn't matter what the promise is. What's important is rebuilding that alignment between intention and action. The key takeaway here in what Nicole is sharing is consistency. And as you'll see or read or hear all throughout the book, all throughout our work and our teachings is the power of consistency. Actually, in order to create change in my own life, Jenna, the Future Self Journal was a tool that I created very early on in my own healing journey after I'd realized how powerful my subconscious was, after I'd witnessed day in and day out it taking over, quite literally, from the moment my eyes opened. No matter what I did before I knew it, I was back in those old ruts. So as someone who actually never really journaled, um, journaling practices never really resonated with me, I began to brainstorm, okay, my subconscious is powerful. Can I create a tool to help myself remember that I want to start to do things differently now? Um, so for me, I began to incorporate a daily journaling practice that I've shared with each and every one of you. Anyone who's interested can find the template, the prompts on the website, theholisticpsychologist.com. And for me, that was my, my daily way of reminding myself of that intention to change. Each and every morning, that's when I found time in my day to journal, the mere act of remembering, of setting a new intention was a first step outside of my autopilot, was a first moment to remember consciously 
what decisions, what choices I wanted to begin to practice throughout my day. So utilizing those tools each and every morning, I would make a repetitive habit. And it began, Stephanie, with me beginning with one choice. Each and every day I would wake up and journal my intention to create that choice within my day. The more I repeated that, the more two things happened. I consciously reminded myself that that autopilot no longer worked. I gifted myself with that space, like we've been talking about, to begin to then take that next step, begin to actualize those new changes, began to shift from that autopilot into my conscious awareness and begin to actually create new choices within my day. So for me, that act of daily journaling was integral. It's still a part of my healing. I do it daily as that reminder, as that first moment where I can, again, witness that alignment, that decision to set and keep new conscious intentions that throughout my day, I can practice keeping. So for me and my life now really gets to be a true testament and teaching to the power of this work and the power of that practice and consistent commitment of doing the future self journal and the daily prompts because I'm now quite literally taking the journal entries that I wrote on that page and living it now in real life. Such a, a powerful teaching, um, Jenna, to, to offer, and you're bringing up, I think, two important points here, um, the first of which is that for many of us, the first small daily promise, maybe Stephanie, um, you want to begin to create for yourself, is maybe the, the action of developing a journaling practice such as future self-journaling, um, where each and every day, again, you're setting an intention to create change. For some of us, again, that becomes the first promise that we keep. Um, sometimes we don't keep it, though each and every day we remind ourselves that we have a new opportunity to show that alignment to our subconscious. You're also bringing up another important piece of the work, which is that it does take work of embodying these new choices then throughout our day. The journal is an incredibly powerful tool. We can harness the power of neuroplasticity, imagining, writing in the present tense, beginning to kind of mentally rehearse these new thought patterns, these new choice patterns, these new feeling patterns, though at some point we have to consistently begin to actualize those choices. So the, the book itself being titled How to Do the Work, everything that we're going to be talking about as this masterclass unfolds is going to really be talking about how to embody then those daily choices. Though for many of us, that future self journal or something similar where we remind our subconscious or we remind from our conscious mind that we want to do things differently. For many of us, that's the first foundation to making those choices and to embodying those choices consistently on the back end. So anyone is interested, again, you can find the journaling prompts on the website. We'll make sure it's all linked up below. Um, some of you out there might want to incorporate that, like similar to Jenna's story. Uh, many of the things that I've wrote, written in my own future self journal are, you know, choices I'm still embodying in my day-to-day -day life and is still a practice that I do daily. Speaking of embodiment, this is a great segue into our next question from Constance. Hi, my name is Constance Mason. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. And in the first chapter, you talk about being stuck. And for me, it's not a lethargic feeling. I can make myself work out. I can do all of that. But when I start to get almost like I'm not physically here. I can be very productive. I can be in the middle of something totally positive, and it's almost like I don't know if it's dissociating. I don't know what it is, but that's when I feel like I need to grab a hold of the past. So for me, that's stuck. Is that the same thing? 
I'm just curious. I'm just, if I can master that, I mean, I, I managed to scratch my way forward no matter what, but if I could master that and limit that, and sometimes I don't master it, but um, most of the time I do. But that's one of my things that I need to, um, I would love to clarify. So if you, if you can answer that, that would be awesome. Thanks. Great question, Constance. Um, and we intentionally picked this one because I think sometimes listeners do hear the word stuck and mm. assume to mean that means lethargic, lack of energy, lack of inspiration, lack of doing. Um, I'm very similar to you, Constance, out there that some of us are stuck in endless doing, in our autopilot wrapped up around productivity or achievement. Um, so for some of us, it looks different. We are doing, 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 um, and that becomes, again, that autopilot place where it is hard to fall back or it is hard to break that actioning in a sense. Um, so to clarify, stuck looks different for each of us. So for some of us, um, our autopilot might consist of that endless actioning again, in habits and patterns that are that are no longer serving us, despite, of course, attempts to change. And as with all things on our journeys, your journey and your healing and your process is going to be unique to you. Mine looks different from Nicole. So what stuck looks like for me is quite literally the opposite of endless actioning. It's more, I feel like I'm in a trench somewhere and don't know how to get out, don't know how to move forward, or my feet are stuck in cement. And I'm kind of just going around in the circle of the same old thing because I have no no space for any new emotional experience or for anything new to be created into. So similar to Constance um, and a little dissimilar to, mm -hmm. to Jenna's experience, uh, my autopilot was very much around achievement, doing, doing, doing. So any moment where I didn't have things to do, there was nothing on my to-do list. Um, I had a moment in my day to choose. Again, that for me felt uncomfortable to a deep, deep on a deep, deep level. Um, so very similar to Constance. Um, you'll hear me talk later in the book about uh, patterns, essentially. And the biggest pattern that I relate to is being an overachiever of populating endless to-do lists and love checking those boxes. So when that's not present to me, again, I feel uncomfortable. Something feels unfamiliar. For those of us that are resonating with this endless doing aspect of our autopilot, the work begins, right, where we begin to shift from doing into being, learning how to tolerate not having a million and one things to do, not being productive like Constance is, right, not doing, learning how to be in a different space is the work. So again, stuck can look different for each of us. What we are exploring, though, is what are the patterns that we continue to repeat despite they're no longer serving us? And for a lot of us, it does look like doing, because to speak to Constance's point, there's a, a function in that doing. For a lot of us, it is our point of distraction or our point of distance or the way that we've dealt um, with some deeper feelings. So there was a protection in doing that makes not doing feel unfamiliar and feel uncomfortable. So many of you who are listening or watching may be able to relate to that creating of an endless to-do list. I know as much as Nicole and I differ in this way where she's constantly, you know, in that overachiever, I think for me that doing was moving around onto a new project and a new project and a new thing. Um, less of achievement, but more of a constantly moving and a constantly doing something instead of just sitting and being. And like Nicole said, there is that discomfort in 
in actually being. When we continue and we do and do and do, we're in that cycle over and over. We almost don't have to think. We are in that autopilot. This book, How to Do the Work, was created for you as a tool and a guide for how to create a new way of being. This conversation about creating a new way of being segues us greatly into our next question that comes from Janelle. Hi, my name is Janelle and I'm from Buffalo, New York. My question um, in regards to chapter one about being our own healer is what is your advice on having patience and self-compassion in the going inward journey? Um, In the book, it talks about how we have to go in and commit to the work. And when we live in a society where perfectionism and that validation that's instant is kind of glorified, what ways can we be there for ourselves and be patient with our own journey and hold that compassion that we would for other people? Um, I've just found that kind of coming up a lot in my own journey and in the journey of others. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. So, yeah, thank you. Such a great question, Janelle. Um, and again, this this concepts of right, patience, self-compassion, um, piggybacking on what we were just speaking about, um, both of those are, are practices. Essentially, they're embodiment practices, right? It's learning how to be patient with oneself or to be compassionate with oneself. And for many of us, that means spending less time focusing on the endless self-critical thoughts. Um, A lot of us have that voice in our head that's endlessly comparing, endlessly tearing ourselves down, endlessly judging ourselves. Of course, that doesn't feel compassionate at all. So for many of us, it's beginning to spend less time entertaining that critical voice inside. Um, So to be clear, you know, when we throw out concepts like uh, patience, self-compassion, they're not just concepts. They attach to an actual practice which is, like I said, either spending less time refocusing our attention away from those negative critical thoughts that will likely still be there. Um, Anyone out there who definitely knows they have that critical voice inside, don't anticipate that it's going to go away um, now that you've identified it. That voice will be there. Um, So again, embodying compassion in that moment might mean refocusing your attention away So for some of us, that might mean, right, removing that focus from those endlessly present um, critical thoughts. So just to be clear, when we're talking about these concepts, we're really talking about practicing um, something different. And for some of us in that autopilot lives that critical voice, lives those thoughts and those cycles. Of course, if we think a critical thought long enough, we begin to feel crappy about ourselves. So the way we want to practice embodying compassion is by removing the attentional focus, not spending as much time tearing ourselves down. When Nicole mentioned spending less time listening to that critical voice and that chatter, it's valuable to know that that voice isn't necessarily going away. It is there. What we're doing here is practicing becoming a neutral witness to that. So instead of judging the judgment that's already there, we're instead just kind of sitting back and 
calmly and neutrally witnessing that this self-criticism is there and is present. That's a, a really great point, Jenna, because um, a lot of us then sit in judgment of having a critical <laughs> voice. We judge ourselves for judging ourselves, and we judge ourselves, and the snowball right continues down the mountain. Jokes aside, this is a great place to practice. Simply noting right that there are critical voices that exist, and not necessarily judging, not taking it to mean anything about yourself. And this is a great opportunity to, as Jenna said begin to practice being a neutral witness, allowing what to be so just to be so. I am someone who has critical voices without overlaying that judgment. One of the prime areas where I see this in myself still, um, I struggle to be compassionate with myself when I don't pick up things quickly. That overachiever mm -hmm. part of my subconscious loves to see me excel because I've had a history of doing that academically and athletically. I know the things I'm good at and I'm quite easily good at those, obviously getting the validation and feeling good about myself when I get that validation. What I've noticed now, when I try something new that I'm not immediately good at, I struggle with having patience for my learning curve. I struggle with being compassionate as I don't pick up things immediately. So again, in those moments, my work continues of learning how to embody that compassion as I struggle to have compassion for myself, allowing myself just to understand what's happening from a very neutral place. So essentially just allowing myself to bear witness to everything as it's happening with objectivity or with neutrality. Janelle, your question is so good because it is the work itself in those moments of self-criticism, of self-judgment, being able to be an objective and neutral witness to that judgment itself. And instead of meeting the judgment with more judgment, allowing ourselves to catch it in that moment and offer ourselves that self-compassion and, and self-love on our journey. Yes, Jenna. So to speak to those points, it is in those moments. So everything we've been talking about in this episode really highlights the importance of cultivating consciousness in real time, in our day-to-day -day action, so that again, we can begin to expand that space. And from that new conscious self, we can begin to create new choices. Truly, the foundation of change begins with the foundation of consciousness. For our next episode of the Masterclass, Chapter 2, The Conscious Self, for those of you who would like to call in and include your questions into our episode, you may call and leave a voicemail at 213-375-8385. Again, it's 213-375-8385. Please leave your name, your location, and your question in regards to Chapter 2, and you will hear some of them played back in our next episode of the Masterclass. Thank you all for joining us here for this episode today. I'm really looking forward to all of your questions and for diving into chapter two on next episode.